2022, the Asian Development Bank Institute is observing the 25th anniversary of its founding as the Asian Development Bank's Tokyo-based think tank under the theme Towards Sustainable and Inclusive Economic Development in Asia and the Pacific. In this episode of Asia's Developing Future, KU University professor Sayuri Shirai, a former Bank of Japan Policy Board member and ADBI Visiting Fellow from 2016 to 2020, explains the role of developing Asia's central banks in reviving economic growth while dealing with volatile capital outflows. She provides historical perspective and addresses shifts stemming from increasing interest rates and climate change risk. She also explains ways to blend risk to attract more private investment for sustainable energy and infrastructure development in the region. Professor Shirai, welcome to Asia's Developing Future. To start things off, can you explain how Asia's capacity to address financial crises has evolved from the region's financial crisis in 1997 when ADBI was founded until today? I think Asian regions has changed quite drastically since then. In 1990s, domestic commercial banks borrowed money from abroad in foreign currencies. Those domestic banks borrowed massively from United States and Europe, and then they convert into local currency and then extend credit to companies and households. This created a mismatch in terms of maturity, borrowing in short term from foreign banks and lend it to the private sector in long term. It created exchanges risk, currency mismatch. So this is called double mismatch. And this kind of problem have been improved since then because a lot of banks in Asia now understand they have to maintain the soundness of banking sector. And also internationally, there is a capital liquidity requirement under Basel committee. Many Asian countries follow those guidelines and the soundness of banking sector is much stronger. And in addition to that, financial market become more diversified. Asian country not only borrow from foreign country in the form of bank loans, but they also issue stocks and also bond. In some countries, they could even borrow in their local currency. In terms of diversifying financial market and system, it's much more improved compared to the 1990s. What do you think have been the biggest breakthroughs in addressing financial stability in developing Asian economies? In 1990s, Asian countries borrowed foreign currency, but they didn't have sufficient foreign reserves. So since this Asian crisis, they realized that they have to maintain sufficient foreign reserve. So now it's a global standard that every country is looking at how much foreign reserve each country has relative to short-term borrowings. The management of foreign reserve is also improving. But also, you know, breakthrough is that now under global capital requirement and liquidity requirement, every country follows similar macro and micro prudential regulation. So in that sense, I think we could ensure the Asian region as a whole, also the banking sector become much more sound. And also International Monetary Finance, Asian Development Bank, World Bank helped the Asian region to improve efficiency and soundness of financial system and market. So all the support contributed to stronger macro and financial fundamentals. What lessons from your time on the Bank of Japan Policy Board did you seek to pass on to other countries in the region while you were at visiting fellow at ADBI? 
I worked for ADBI as a researcher for about four years after I finished my term as a one of the monetary policy makers at Bank of Japan. When I worked for ADBI, I put a lot of emphasis on cash and digital currency. I paid attention to private sector issued crypto asset, the cryptocurrency, and then I also pay attention to various form of currency such as stable coins. What is a stable coin? How does it relate to cryptocurrency? Let me explain briefly the difference between Bitcoin and stablecoin. Now, Bitcoin, the value is very volatile. People cannot use it for daily shopping. Whereas the stablecoins, they're still crypto asset. It's based on blockchain technology, but they are backing values with hard currency like Euro, US dollars, and Japanese and so on. So it's very stable. I try to differentiate Bitcoin and stablecoin. I wrote a report that stablecoins are much riskier because it's more usable, it's a value is stable, and therefore people globally may use it in replacing some hard currencies. Uh, What's wrong with that? This may create some problem because blockchain technology creates a lot of advantage, but at the same time, it has often used for illegal activities. It's very difficult to contain those illegal activities, and there's no protection for consumers and investors, and therefore, just leave the stablecoin there and it becoming popular is a bit dangerous from the perspective of policymakers, central bankers. Therefore, central bank digital currency, CBDC, is important for that reason. I did a lot of research at ADBI and tried to explain why central bank digital currency is so important. There's a various form of central bank digital currency, so I try to analyze pros and cons and what's happening globally. Globally, many central banks are looking into the feasibility of CBDC, and especially after COVID-19 pandemics, people like to use more digital currency rather than cash. So therefore, central banks have to think that they may issue central bank digital the currency to replace cash or in parallel to cash. What risks concern you the most when it comes to financial stability and recovery in Asia? Especially after COVID-19 pandemics in Asia, emerging and developing countries, the government borrowed quite a lot, so their debt is rising. The private sector also borrowed a lot, so both sovereign and private sector debt has grown. This creates vulnerability, weakness among those emerging economies because they still depend a lot on foreign capital inflows. U.S. Federal Reserve and many other central banks, they are trying to tighten monetary policy by raising interest rates. Because of that, many Asian countries, the emerging and developing countries, are facing capital outflow because of this interest differential and also rising uncertainty related to Ukraine. People like to invest in U.S. and purchase U.S. financial assets. So at this stage, a lot of Asian countries, they haven't really completely recovered from COVID-19 crisis. And also, they have a lot of debt, and now they face capital outflow. What are the implications of the capital outflow? Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, in Asia, emerging and developing countries, they borrowed quite a lot. Some of those money went to greater investment in residence and a financial asset that led to the bubble in financial and real estate assets. So now, to cope with capital outflow, many Asian countries also have to raise interest rate very soon. This means this asset bubble over variation of prices may go down. So central bank and regulators in Asia have to find a way to 
smoothen this process and not create the collapse of bubble and also not to undermine the economy of Asian countries. They have to do sound monetary policy, but also they have to look very carefully what's happening to financial system and capital market. They have to find a way not to create sudden disturbances to the economy and market. What policy areas do you think developing Asian countries need to focus on the most to mitigate uncertainties today and moving forward? I think the biggest issue for Asia and also many other developing countries and emerging economy is climate change. The IPCC just released a very important report. Even though many countries are committed to net zero emission target, many countries haven't really come up with a credible comprehensive policy package yet. So with current situation, global temperature by the end of century might go above three degrees relative to pre-industrial era. This is a tremendous financial stability risk in Asia. How so? How does climate change affect financial stability in Asia? Because Southeast and South Asia, those regions are subject to a lot of climate change related natural disaster and lots of losses often happen there. We cannot avoid global warming, but we can try to prevent the rapid pace of global warming. The Asian countries still depend a lot on fossil fuel, especially coal fuel energy, and they also need to build up more electricity because they still need economic growth. So how to balance maintaining economic growth and making those economy more sustainable in environment sense. This is very challenging. Now, there's a difference between advanced economy and emerging economies. Advanced economy, like Japan or United States or Europe, we already achieved high level of living standard. We have a quite good infrastructure, social security system, and safety net. When this natural disaster happens, we still can manage it. But imagine economy and developing country in Asia, they don't have sufficient money. The government doesn't have a lot of money to cope with that. But yet, the losses there will be much bigger than advanced economies. It's probably harder for developing countries to successfully implement a sustainable energy agenda. For advanced economy, because we already reached a high level of living standard, we can shift to renewable energy and we can do a lot of research in renewable energy energy or hydrogen energy and new technology. But in a developing country, it's very difficult because they haven't really reached a high level of living standard. So they need to have higher economic growth, but then there might be trade-off between economic growth and the cost that has to be paid to cope with climate change. It's so interesting to hear how climate change, economic growth, energy consumption structure, all these complex systems are interlinked together. So how can ADBI and other think tanks support greater progress in these respects? I think ADBI can play a crucial role here. If ADBI can show example of how to achieve economic growth and also making economy more sustainable environmentally, this will be very important. I think many Asian countries need support from advanced economy and also international organizations. ADBI, from research perspective, probably they can find several scenarios which make this possible. Another thing, after all, to achieve 
this emission target. Asian countries need more money. They still need infrastructure and need money to build up infrastructure. But when they build infrastructure, they should build infrastructure from the perspective of climate change. So the infrastructure is sufficient enough to cope with climate change adoption. And also when they build up the electricity, they have to think whether those are environmentally sustainable. ADBI can do a lot of research in this area and also how to bring money from other countries. How can governments promote investment in developing Asia? Now, of course, Japan and other advanced economies provide ODA, but it's not enough. Also, international organizations provide money, but in total, it's too small. The issue is how to bring private sector money into this climate change issue and solutions. And importantly, ADBA have to think how to bring institutional investors, such as insurance companies and pension funds in advanced economies. And then they are very much interested in ESG, environment, social governance-oriented investment. So how to bring those ESG investors into developing an emerging economy is essential. At this moment, many institutional investors are reluctant to be involved in this emerging economy to a greater extent. Why is that? Number one, because of the lack of data, how to analyze, there is not sufficient data. And number two, emerging economy still needs to improve in terms of macroeconomic fundamentals, social structure, health insurance, social safety net structures. Compared to advanced economy, there's a lot of risk for private sector institution investors. So right now, we are talking about blended finance. To wrap up, can you explain blended finance and how can we utilize it to mitigate risk and facilitate financing from the private sector? Blended finance means including official ODA and international organization funding, private sector institution investors, formulate, fund the financial package, which are provided by various types of investors and international organization and government. So higher risk, lower risk, medium term risk. The government and international organization can provide more concessional loans. They can take greater risk. The private sector people, because they are also subject to a lot of financial regulation, they can take a lot of risk. Those lower risk components can be provided by private sectors. So this kind of risk sharing is essential. ADBI can do a lot of research around this, how to provide this kind of sustainable finance to generate economic growth and also make those economy environmentally more sustainable. This has been Asia's Developing Future. Brought to you by the Asian Development Bank Institute. For more information about us, visit adbi.org.